You've made Skibbereen your home for quite a long time. About 26 years now. Well, I was, I was about 12 years and 13 years in Ballot Hall, but I've just moved further up, you know. Yeah. I want to talk to you about another town, uh, Athai. Yeah, of course, yeah, Athai. How long has it been since you've been back? It's about a year since I've been in Athai. But it's still my, my spiritual home. Yeah. I think everybody has to have a sense of place. And, um, you know, there are people I love. My aunt is buried in Athai. A, a, a very important sequence of photographs I took on Katie Thirl, the way, you know, Mrs. Thirl is buried in Athai. And then the other people as well who I've known over the years. So for listeners who might not know about this incredible body of work, you you went back to Athai, the town that you grew up in, mm. for almost 40 34 years. years. I was photographing the town for 34 years. I mean, I left the town about 1957. My aunt and my uncle, who, who took care of me, um, we went to London. You know, I went to school in London for a few years at St. Edmund's Secondary Mod School. You know, you're always, when you're in London, you're Irish. There's that sense of, you know, and it's the church, you know, I was obviously going to Mass. There was invariably yeah, at the back of the church, the club where people would meet from all quarters of the four provinces. And, um, but it was always about going home. And every time I would go back to Ireland with my aunt and uncle, you know, I thought I was my home, mm. although I was born in Dublin, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. So when did you go back specifically to start taking photographs? Or did that well, I went, no, I went specifically about 1962 because I was an apprentice on the Daily Mail in London. I uh, was an apprentice in the photographic darkroom of the Daily Mail because, um, you know, newspapers exist with words and they exist with images. And I've been assaulted beautifully for about 60 years by looking at images and incredible. I mean, it's at the forefront of history by looking at pictures. The Kennedy assassination in Dallas, I remember copying photographs that came in that had to be re-photographed to put contrast onto the picture so that it could be transmitted to the Daily Mail offices in Edinburgh, in Manchester, in London, and in Cardiff. You know, that was my role. And I was, I was only 16 then, in 1962. Yeah. I think it kind of was in 1963, but you know what I mean? I, that's how quickly my life took, you know, took shape then. Yeah. And I realized that a few years behind me, I'd left a part of my life, which was going to school in the Society of Christian Brothers, which I had a fantastic time. I didn't particularly learn anything, but I did have a terrific sense of my faith, what I believe in, still believe in, and um, being in London, working in photography, I was always looking at monograph picture books of Ansel Adams, people who created great images that, you know, you, you never forget, you know, during the Depression era in America in the 30s, Books published about that. Photographers in Paris who were photographing old Paris, old Parisian life, you know, uh, which we wouldn't know if it hadn't been for Aja or Brassard. And I thought, there's nobody doing it in my country. I'm going to fucking do this. This is what I can do. Because I understand the alchemy of taking photographs, developing pictures, and being the 
you know, the photographer, the Irish photographer. Yeah. That meant, because, you know, in the UK, in London, I mean, we, I was familiar with Cecil Beaton, you know, yeah. uh, David Bailey, Tony Armstrong Jones, a.k.a. who went on to marry, you know, Lord Snow to marry Princess uh, Margaret. I knew it all. Oh, my God. You know, but I thought this was an opening for me to go back to Ireland at 16 and photograph love, life, and death. I think I may have mentioned that to you before. There's only those three, that trip to love, life, and death. Not all of us on the journey get those, any one of those things. Some, some of us are deprived of the love, even the life. But we're all guaranteed the fucking death. That never changes. There are very famous images in that series from Athai, which are the photos of the wake of... Of Katie Tyrrell, that's right. Well, you know, like... You may know that I'm wearing a little badge of Samuel Beckett. It's not my photograph, but I got to meet and photograph this probably greatest dramatist of the 20th century through a sequence of photographs. As I said, I started photographing in the fire in 1962. Corner Boys. At that point, it was one bus coming from Dublin. It ended up in a thigh on its way to Kilkenny in the morning, and the same bus would be coming back at night, picking up. And, you know, you'd get the corner boys waiting to see who was getting off the bus or who was getting on the bus. I didn't realize that, but I, I'd, I was photographing Beckettian characters, you know, waiting, you know, because their own life. Some of these people had never been to Dublin. It seems yeah. unthinkable. And then I would get to meet Samuel Beckett through a sequence of photographs I took in February 1977 of um, a lady called Mrs. Katie Tyrrell, who, if you can say, looked magnificent in death. The whole serenity surrounding that ritual, which I was blessed. And I have to thank my dear friend Bertie Doyle, who is the publican of Doyle's Bar. It was Bertie who, uh, when I went in that morning at half ten, I happened to be in Ireland, February in 1977, and Bertie told me Mrs. Tyrrell had passed away during the night. And I said to him, look, because I'd always known from the 60s that having pictures, and I was, you know, photographing the postman, the the postman, the baker, the candlestick, you know, I was doing everything to try and put together this essay on my tradition. It's not very fashionable anymore because I find people in Ireland today, you know, they're more interested in the David Hockney or the three ducks in the wall than, you know, than the picture of the mother and child. You know, because Ireland strives so much for modernity that it's forgotten something. When he started getting poor when we became rich. Maybe it's worth just dwelling on that for a minute, that point that it was through these photos. So all the time you had, you were still working on Fleet Street, you still had this yeah. career with, you know, and there were these kind of like uh, so-called celebrity uh, people that you had photographed. There were lots of people in the arts and stuff, but what you showed Beckett and what led to you being able to photograph Beckett and that very, very famous image that you took was the work that you did when you came back to Athai. I remember I had an exhibition in London in 1979. It was just called The Wake of Katie Tyrrell. And it was at the Hamilton's Gallery in Mayfair. I was the first photographer to ever have a show in this gallery. Mm. Like The Wake of Katie Tyrrell. It's a whole philosophy in, in looking and thinking. Mm. You know, because the pictures are, through my understanding, it's just, as some of the locals would tell me, 
you know, the, the, the mythology surrounding the wake. Look at me, for you're looking at a reflection of yourself, for death is the beginning. And Mrs. Tyrrell looks so in death, as I said, her, her hands are entwined with the rosary beads, she's in the Legion of Mary burial fire, which uh, for two nights and three days, I would photograph that ritual from the deathbed to the grave. You know, as, as I'm talking, I'm still thinking, I'm seeing her coffin in laying in repose in the chapel. For the next day, it's going to be a mass and her remains will be taken to the medieval churchyard. Can I ask you how her family received you? Well, that's a good question. There was there was a little bit of a contentious thing to start with because, you know, back in, in the, when I took those photographs in the, in the mid-70s, I, at that point, the photographic magazines were beginning to become familiar with my pictures. This Irish photographer in London. So I was publishing the pictures and... Um, they were appearing in, as I said, the British Journal of Photography, Amateur Photographer, which is still going today. I remember coming back to a site and there was, uh, yeah, I remember, I had an exhibition in Dublin, one of the galleries, one of the, the newly opened photography galleries on the Keys. To one of Mrs. Tool's daughters took, you know, had sent a letter to me in London through a solicitor objecting to my photographs and to take them off the wall. Well, what she didn't know at the time, of course, and I've forgotten, is first of all, I was given permission to take those photographs. The same woman who's asking me to take the pictures is actually in the photograph, looking into my camera. She calls me an intruder, which upset me terribly. But at the time at which you attend, you first, when you made the arrangement and you attended the wake and you were there, yeah. what was the family response? It was fantastic. I mean, they were great. Nobody said anything. Yeah. Because there was such a there was a, there was a certain solemnity about there and uh, and I knew about because I you know growing up in a thigh I was very familiar with the clop clop sound of the horse hearse coming and in Plumen's Terrace seeing silhouetted figures in between a draped kind of other thing and the lights you know dressing the body and doing things and no matter. You know, I was very, you know, I was about five and six and watching this, you know, those kind of images, well, never left me. So they were okay at the time, but then retrospectively? Well, retrospectively, I mean, at the time, everything was fine. There was only one person in the family who objected. But, but very quickly, I mean, my own solicitor, of course, it was dropped like a hot potato, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I was upset by that because all of my life, I've been 95% photographer and 5% business. It's not about fucking money for me. It's about the passion. And there are a lot of photographers out there, and I'm talking about a lot of digital, in the digital world, you know, they don't, there's never any time to digest what you're looking at. Yeah. I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at what's all around you. You have to die, you know what I mean? I'm, all those images of the time, and there must be about at least a dozen of them, which are really, I see them as single, just, you know, they're, they're, they're wonderful. I love them. Mm. I get to meet Samuel Beckett in 1980 through a sequence of photographs from Messiah. And these, these photographs of the sequence on the wake. He approved. Well, initially, when I knew he was in town, when I knew he was in London, he came over from Paris to direct the San Quentin drama group. It was by design that I would meet Beckett. Nobody owned Samuel Beckett. Samuel Beckett was, you know, I mean, I was designated I would have my pictures, take these pictures of Beckett, which I've given to traveling groups around the, around the world, but nothing. 
Mm. I mean, my, you look at the web, you might be down, Andy Wood. <laughs> Presumably, in some sense, I mean, only Samuel Beckett owns Samuel. Samuel Beckett is that, uh, you know, I mean, there was a piece in the Irish paper, you know, the quintessential Irish voice of Beckett, you know, waiting for God there. That's ridiculous. There's no such thing as the definitive Beckett production. You know, Beckett is Beckett, you know, I mean... Is there such a thing as the definitive Beckett image? I, I think there's a definitive Beckett image, and I think I probably have taken it, that one of Simon the Cafe. I mean, bearing in mind that picture was taken in Paris in December 1985, I'd photographed a man first in 1980 in London, and in 1984 in London, and then at his invitation, John, yeah, I'd be glad to see you in Paris, provided you leave your camera at home. <laughs> Well, of course he would say that, wouldn't he? But you can't, when you go to Paris as a photographer, you can't leave your camera. It was in my camera bag in my little two-star uh, hotel room near the uh, Luxembourg Gardens. When I saw Sam that Saturday afternoon in Paris, and we were talking about, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm not an academic. Our conversation would center around photography. And Beckett, he hoovered up images in his head. This was a man living in Paris who knew Brassard, the photographer under Paris, Brassard. Man Ray, I mean, you know, who of course took those wonderful pictures of Joyce, who of course Beckett was familiar with. And, you know, like he, there was nothing he didn't know about Parisian photography. You know, he said to me, and he said to me, John, do you know the work of Brassard? Well, of course I did, because Brassard collaborated with Henry Miller photographing um, Paris. You know, that's when I was interested when the writer and the photographer collaborate together. These, you know, and so many writers are just mesmerized by photography, as Beckett was. Seeing him on that Saturday without the camera, I said to him, I remember Tony Cronin saying to me, I said, I met Tony in Dublin socially, and I said, I'm going to Paris, I'm going to see Beckett next week. Oh, ask him for a new portrait. You know, I, I mean, there wasn't a lot of portraits out, you know, because there were going to be some celebrations to celebrate his uh, 80th birthday, which was the following year in 1986. And uh, well, over the, you know, the copious amount of coffee and brandies in Le Petit Café, it was, it was basically a, one of those hotels on Boulevard Saint-Jacques, which Sam loved. That's where he met his friends. I had, before I met him, I'd already seen the traditional café, you know, with the waiter in his white apron, full of glass, and, you know, a little, I said, no, no, I can't go there, blah, blah. And I, I just followed the master, you know, and he took me into this um, this hotel called the PLM Boulevard Saint-Jacques. We were on the ground floor in this coffee shop and uh, in the corner, and chopping away, drinking, and we were talking about this, that, and the other. And he was quite excited because I think there was a kind of sense where I'm working through ignorance, but I'm just looking at the image and the man and knowing that I'm in the presence of a supreme being. You know, this was meant to be, and I'm savoring as I did when I saw him in 1980 in the hotel. And he's sitting on the bed looking at my photographs of a thigh. And I mean, looking, not just in the world today where people, oh, I like going up to You know, it's like it's, nobody's looking anymore. But Beckett was, John, who are he? Oh, that's Peter Boland. Oh, hi, that's a nice portrait. And then the wake and this. And because I knew people's names, added a, uh, there was a, you know, added a certain amount of dignity to the occasion, you know. It's not like today in the world out there, beautiful, slick pictures, 
taken basically of an old man in a pub. We know what Guinness looks like, <laughs> and we know all the corporate kind of assassins around it, but who's the fucking guy there sitting in the corner? Nobody knows him. I want to know him. I want, and I have his name, because it's the people who lend character to the occasion. Do you think that you can know people by photographing them? No. I can know a little bit about people. I can understand the vanities about it because it's the obvious thing. We're all a little bit vain. I mean, I've been for 70 years cultivating the illusion. What illusion? For myself. to feel, Even though I'm 76 now, I still feel there's the beating heart of a 25-year-old lad in there who had this passion to, to walk the streets of the tide, to try and recreate some of my past, to chase around Fleet Street, to beat the best of them at the game. And I did. This guy from Plumas Terrace. It's not important to say what you did, but there was a lot of front pages that wouldn't have happened without me. Your father died before you were Yeah, and my mother then dumped me. But I say the word dumb, it sounds a bit callous really, but she did basically at the end of the day because I only met my mother, I think twice in my life, because you know, you know, the Irish sort of uh, sensibility, lots of sisters, and lots of brothers and one sister, or lots of sisters and one brother. It was that kind of family. So my, my, when my father died, my mother left me with her sister and then went to England, married again, had another four boys. And uh, I only met my mother, say, twice. I remember she came over from England. She was in Dublin with one of the other sisters. And you know, I was brought up to Dublin. And um, it's funny how pictures, photographs, you know, they kind of, um, they're stark in my head. I wanted to ask you if you've ever had a photograph of your father. I have. Well, I just want to say, I, on the mantelpiece in Dublin, in Kimmich, where the other sister lived, well, it was this photograph of my father and mother on the wedding day on the mantelpiece. Yeah. I'm about six or seven. My mother is looking at me and she says, you're not as handsome as your father. At that moment, I knew that she lit fire inside me that would never be extinguished. Like, I'm on my own here, kid. I mean, I'd never forgotten that because I thought it was a kind of cruel thing to say. Yeah. I wondered, though, if it lit a spark in you for trying to document and capture people. Yeah, but Ellie, that's interesting. I do, you know something? I sometimes look at myself and I think, because I can't quite articulate it, but all I know is that at that moment, I knew that this is my, and I knew she was my mother because I'd heard my aunt speak about her, and uh, I see her standing, I'm on the floor, because the other sister who she came to visit, her husband worked in Jacob's Cream Crackers, and I knew in that house there was always tins of biscuits. And I'm on the floor, rifling through a tin of Jacob's Cream Crackers or something, and she's standing looking down at me, and on the, and I'm, and on the mantelpiece is this photo, which I now have this photograph, because one of the family gave it to me of my father and my mother on their wedding day in Kimmage. It was a driving force. As I said, something was lit inside me. And Because um, it's very interesting because you have this kind of Fleet Street upbringing in, mm. in terms of a photographer and, and everything that that carries with it. These kind of moments of like, great, I got it. I got to kind of capture this image and this is this fantastic mm. moment. And then, But then if you look at 
you know, the kind of ethics of that. And like, so say, for example, like, you know, Susan Sontag writing about how, you know, this kind of this notion that you own something when you capture it. Well, it's, or, you know, the word yeah, of go, I mean, with respect to Sandra, Susan Sontag, that goes, I mean, right back to yeah. the South American Indians, you, you know, you, the photographers stealing their soul. Yeah. Do you believe in that? Well, I believe, like, uh, you know, very distinguished Irish writers said to me some years ago, John, many people's perception of Samuel Beckett is really partly due to your photographs. Mm. And I believe that. So I had a show in the National Portrait Gallery in London on Beckett, a small exhibition within the National Portrait Gallery, which, you know, photography is a big deal in, in certain places. Looking at uh, that division, if you would see it as a division between the things you were doing in Asai, which were kind of paying homage to your background, mm. maybe documenting in some sense, doing work that you knew that others had not done in an mm. Irish context, as you said at the start of the conversation, and simultaneously this this kind of press photographer life. Is there a division between those two things in, in your career? When I was an apprentice, mm. I went to school from 1962. I went to the London School of Printing and Graphic Arts, which sounds grand and it in Carter, but it meant absolutely nothing, apart from the fact I was bullied horrendously because yeah. I was Irish. But nothing stopped me. I always came back and did certain things, and but, you know, of course, I had racism, had certain things, you know, because. But I meant, did it occupy a different space for you? You know. Well, it well it did for me then. I. The five years as an apprentice, I loved it because I knew I had a ferocious appetite for hoovering up visual images and books. That's why I talk about the reason you can photograph a thigh and make a document, a social essay in your hometown, because it comes from somewhere else. I knew how to do this, you see. And then, you know, even in the darkroom, I was, you know, yeah, it was kind of strange. There were certain guys in there who didn't get the Irishman, let's put it, you know, there was, there was, I found certain things and I realized that I wanted to get out of the darkroom and, be, and become a photographer. So when I was about 18 and 19, I used to photograph the bands were happening in London, Soho. I became really involved in Soho and the Flamingo Club and Georgie Fame and Ronnie Scott and The Who in 1964, about the second day, the second night they played a residency in the market. I was doing all this because I was earning nothing as, a, as an apprentice. And then suddenly, Melody Maker, NME, Disc were coming from me and newspaper to use my pictures. And then I started photographing young actors. I was a member for uh, doing a... a a fashion show with Susie Kendall, who was a beautiful model with long hair. And I remember taking pictures. Oh, she, oh so I read tomorrow, she said, because I'm going to have my hair cut. I'm doing a film. I think it was called Up the Junction. Anyway, but she's having, uh, I said, I'm going to video soon tomorrow. And I thought, oh, great. Got her with the long hair. And I said, can I come and you? Yeah, I'm bleeding at 10 o'clock. So I got her before she walked in. So in, in a newspaper, in a kind of, you know, I knew how to do this. So suddenly, you know, I was beginning to know the picture editors and what was happening because I was cultivating my journey beyond being an apprentice. And at the same time, of course, I was going to Ireland back all the time at 16 with cameras, Wally flexes. But I knew what a picture, I, you know, I, I just got excited when I thought, yeah, you know, if I came back, spent a week in the thigh, which normally would be about a week at a time. 
with a bucket of film, I'd go back to the dark, I could do this, because that was my role. Black and white photography is like, now we're in a world, as I said, in this digital world, this ever fucking boring <laughs> circularization of world where everyone is looking with their iPhones and their cameras, but what are they looking at? You're talking about Instagram, and I don't understand this. Instagram, Twitter, I mean, my daughter's on Facebook, and she's always sending me stuff, and I'm I said, yeah, please don't put that. I'm always saying not to do this, you know. I mean, she's always sending my pictures of my three grandsons, which is lovely. But there's a, there seems to be an assault on the senses, the way that, you know, people utilize this kind of social media to... I mean, they're saying nothing to me, but they must be making some kind of communication about something. It's, I mean, I don't get it, you know. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose I do, because when film was expensive, when yeah. photographers were working for an entity very frequently, people didn't feel that they owned their own image. And that idea of self-ownership, that when you self-publish, you're in control of what image you put out. Yeah, but, yeah and I, even today now, it's funny you should say that, because when I was telling you the story about going to London, to the South Bank, to photograph John Hurt doing Kraft's last tape, and a certain person but no, no, you can't do this. You know, these same people in the gate filmed, now bearing in mind, Beckett is dead at this stage. He died in 1989, I think it was. But they filmed all of Beckett's work. Everything. His 19 plays, all filmed. Even if it's only a 60-second piece of nonsense that... Kenneth Tynan had asked Sam, will you, he's doing the thing called, oh, Calcutta, will you, will you um, write something? Oh, okay, so 60 seconds of a room full of chaos, <laughs> and all you hear is <laughs> Now, when that was done, it was directed by Damien Hurst. And you see, The Waiting for God, though, was filmed. It was written to be performed, but it's on a fucking pub, pub theater in Nottingham Gate or a pub theater in Ballybrack. The fact is, Beckett was very specific. If he wrote for the radio, it was for the radio. You know, I mean, Dylan Thomas wrote one of the great radio plays of all time, Under Milk Wood. I've seen it on film. It doesn't work. Mm. No matter how many great stars I have, Richard Burton, it just doesn't work. And Beckett wrote radio plays. He wrote for television and he wrote for the theater. And when he wrote for he wrote for theater. So I think Sam would have been appalled at all these things. Sam. But Katie, well, I had an exhibition back in the 80s there, hanging pictures of Beckett on the walls. But, you know, that's what I did. So, you know, I know the perception of Beckett, as I'm talking to you right now about that man, there's a synchronicity even in death. I know he's ordained me to talk like this about what I'm talking to you about. He's ordained you. Well, he, he, I'm one of the good guys. I'm not taken <laughs> from him. I'm sharing. Yeah, I know. I know. It's just that that's strong language. Well, you know, but I, you know, the thing is, look, there's any amount of theater groups in Ireland that come on to me to use pictures. I said, fine, no problem. Now it happens. I mean, my archive is what you should see in court. But the pictures are there for everyone to look at. I mean, there is another thing. I keep harping on about ethics, but I think because it's something that I suppose I think about a lot. I think about photographers like Diane Arbus, who seemed to kind of revel in 
the level of access people would grant them to their lives, you know, mm. as a kind of a, a, almost as a kind of a personal achievement. Do you have to be a manipulator when you're working as a photographer? Of course. If I'm going to photograph a writer, I'll try and read his book. I like writers who are interested in photography, and John Bamble is um, somebody I have huge respect for as a writer, but also as, you know, as a photographer, image, you know, he, he likes images. Yeah. And he'll always review picture books. Um, you know, I've seen him for years in the New York Review of Books. He'll review Cartier Bresson and he's collaborated with many photographers. And um, I kind of like that. I like, you know, like um, there was something I was going to tell you about, John, talking to me about one of my pictures. I'd taken a photograph when I was an apprentice of the Whispering Gallery in St. Paul's Cathedral. Mm. See, everything harps back. I don't know, I'm not just saying it, but religion has always played its part in my life. And at 16 years of age, I'm an apprentice in the Daily Mail. I would go and have lunch in St. Paul's Cathedral, this incredible edifice I would watch and see every day coming into Fleet Street. And I go up there, and, you know, and then one day I see a sign that says, Whispering Gallery, no entrance. <laughs> but, you know, so for me, you talk about me, for, oh, no, so, you know, I, I'm 16 years of age. I'm curious. My camera, you know, it, it's leading the way. I'm governed by what's, you know. So I, I got these hundreds and hundreds of steps. Anyway, it's quite a lot up to the, the, the dome of the cathedral, where you hear the voices downstairs. And there's these two men elderly gentlemen, I would say they were in their 40s, with their hands cupped, listening. And, the, you know, the tonal quality of the wall where people's clothes, I mean, you know, it's fucking brilliant. That picture, I took it on a Yashica mat, which was a cheap copy of the Rolleiflex, and printed, developed it, printed it, and sent it into a newspaper. Um, it was a competition, and it won me five guineas. It's, you know, now the guy may have just picked it from a bag, but, you know, John Minahan, his excursion into photography, we wish Mr. Minahan his good luck, five guineas, which was a lot of money to me then, 1962. Yeah. 61, it was actually 61, 62. But when John Bamber saw me in Dublin about four years ago, we were walking down Dawson Street or something, and he said, John, I saw your photograph with me. It's a masterpiece, and that's what he said. Nobody, nobody ever said it to me, you know, but I've always known that was important. These are your decisive moments. These are moments which are, you know, like it was just incredible, you know. I mean, like Fleet Street, Bomb, St. Paul's Cathedral. And I love, I mean, I, I love collecting all Victoria. I mean, I'm interested in Victorian photography. You know, this is why I just come back from London there a month ago, because I wanted to see at Kensington Palace, the royal family who were, you know, Queen Victoria and her consort Albert understood how important photography was mm. to propagate that whole uh, House of Windsor. That interests me because they, Victoria, the family, they created photographers. Like, we wouldn't know who Roger Fenton was, the photographer who photographed the Crimean War. This is a guy who is showing us the first time 
dead bodies. The first time anyone saw dead bodies on a battlefield. Who famously staged some of his photographs. Now, I don't know about that, and, and I don't disbelieve you, Ellie, because a lot of pictures have been staged. There was a, a researcher who went back to the same to that same valley mm. because the stones had been... He noticed that in the famous cannibal yeah. image, which is, you know, haunting sure. because of its yeah. emptiness, he uh, went back and he deduced through a, a, a long process that the cannibals had been placed there. Funny enough, I... I I've never heard that story. That's it's absolutely God's honest truth. But I could equally say, you know, the American Civil War, you know, the Gettysburgs, those photographs by Matthew Brady, Irishman, Irish-American, Timothy O'Sullivan, other Irishmen, who took all those photographs. But I have to admit, I was responsible once for manipulating a situation. Again, it had a kind of, it had a religious inflection because I remember I was in Trafalgar Square in 1969 mm. and I saw some young nuns getting off a bus they were walking down Whitehall and I followed them they were walking to the young novices I mean the, you know the guard the whole lot and got as far as Parliament you know there's a little green space outside there with this kind of and I saw the nuns and I spoke to I don't know the Reverend Matt said this look I'm an Irish guitar. I used to say that because sometimes it would be a <laughs> password, you know, to say, you know, <laughs> yeah. particularly, in the, you know, oh, um, look, I've got an idea to do a picture because all I have is a caption, law and holy order. And there was a tulip bed. And I told him, listen, there's a policeman across the road there. You wouldn't just walk past them with you. Now, I created that situation, but that situation won me the feature section of the Britannia, the Encyclopedia Britannia uh, Press Picture of the Year. There's another thing that you did, and that's that you positioned Princess Diana. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, was, I was the first photographer to bring Lady Diana Spencer, that vivacious teenager, into the light. What happened after that? After 70 years down the road, was certainly she went into a rather dim and sad darkness. So what happened was that you were the first photographer on the scene. What happened the... was I was in, you know, I, I sometimes had a lot of early mornings and I was about 10 past six. I'm in South Kensington in a coffee shop, a little greasy spoon that I used to like. And I, I was reading the Daily Mail. I was reading Nigel Dempster, who was a columnist on the paper. It was just a, a paragraph that said, Prince Charles has relinquished his relationship with Sarah Spencer, but was now seeing her younger sister Diana, who was working in a kindergarten in Pimlico, which was literally for me then, 10 minute drive up the road. Bang, that was it, I'm up there. You know, I'm 10 to seven in the morning, I'm knocking on the door. The headmistress was obviously informed, as indeed Diana was, because once it was in the Daily Mail, that was it, you know what I mean? Nigel Spencer was well tuned into the palace. You know. Yeah. And I and I said, well, I want, oh, I want to speak to Lady Baba. We had to get permission from the kids' parents and into the lot. And I took her into the lot and did it. Then she went back in again. There was nobody around, not a sinner around. By about 20 to 8, other people started coming. TV crews, fucking this, that, and other. Was she aware that, the, that she, you know, because she's wearing no, this very No, she hadn't got a skirt, clue. I mean, when I looked through that, she wasn't looking at what I was looking at. Yeah. 
I was just thought this time, this is not digital. This is the ding, 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 ding. I knew there was something special there. And I had a dispatcher item one of my colleagues ding, 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 back to the office and told the picture editor, he said, stay there. I'm still there about 20 to 8. Other people come in. They're, they didn't want to know. Diane is not coming out again. My picture was already at that point on the front page. You know, it was on page one, page three. And it'll never, it'll always be part of that history of Diana. I mean, that, that history of Diana would go on to become, with photographers and with the paparazzi, ultimately extremely destructive to her. I mean, there's the, the panorama interview with her where she's gaunt and she's talking about, you know, basically kind of being objectified, you know what I mean? And being at the center of this type of constant mm. attention where people are grabbing a part of her in hindsight how do you feel about that you she was in her late teens no but it's interesting with diana let me you know i mean i was on that story from the beginning for about two weeks that's all it's not a lot september 1980 diana you know she knew me and i'll tell you what you know up until diana came on the scene the nearest i got to the royals was i was always my gig to photograph the queen mother on St. Patrick's Day, presenting with the Irish mascot called Seamus, Shamrock to the Irish gods. Diana was something special. She, in my opinion, was the human face of the royal family. And of course, she created, unfortunately, a kind of paparazzi, what I call bounty hunters. You know, when you have a price in your head, that's the game is up. You know what I mean? It's like 24 hour bomb, it's awful. And I remember about ten days after she was she was she got out, came out of her apartment and drove down to Barclay Square. I don't know for why she parked her car, went into Barclay Square, and sat on a wooden bench and just started bawling like a child. I phoned up the picture editor then on the paper. So I'm not doing this picture who reprimanded me because I wasn't paid to make decisions like that. But of course, that's exactly what I was paid to make decisions. You know, I'm an ambassador for a paper. I don't make the decisions. I'm not going to take this picture. Like there's, uh, you know, dozens of guys with their TV, and she's crying. And I thought, where the fuck are we coming 2,000 years? I mean, this is awful. It's dreadful. Anyway, what I did was gone by a dozen roses. I had my friend at this part. I said, look, take me back to the... I gave her a couple of hours to get back there. Went back to call her news in South Kensington. Rang the doorbell, because I knew she lived on the second floor. And then went across the other side of the road. So she'd look out the window. Who is that? Boom. She saw me. I'm dripping in cameras. And she came down, just me and her. It's a one-to-one situation. She's apologized. Oh, I'm really bad. It's a bang. Listen, look. I mean, I gave them to her. And I always remember people, I tell them this story, she can't take a photograph. And I look at them and say, there are certain situations in life when you have to cherish the moment. Not everything is photographable. So you don't consider yourself part of that paparazzi? Absolutely not. I do not. Because as I said to you earlier on in our conversation, I'm 95% photographer. Of course, I have a healthy respect for a few Barney Dillons. We all do. 
And film, by the way, is very expensive now to buy. Yeah. More expensive than it was, certainly, <laughs> because a lot of young people who are discovering are coming back into the real world. You know, they want to look at they want to look at a roll of film. They want to look at frame 16, a you know, you know, they don't want to be controlled by corporate assassins. What about uh, your? Are you taking photographs still? Of course. Yeah. I have. You might look at my top of my hat. You know, here I've got a badge of the Cuban flag. Yeah. In Havana, I've been for 20 years photographing Havana, photographing the ballet. I'm not interested too much in the politics. I'm interested in the culture because Ernest Hemingway lived in Havana for 25 years. I mean, this is a little country that some years back one of the American presidents called an evil of access. Fuck it, if that country is an evil of access, like I'm Queen Victoria, you know, I saw nothing but love, people, great music, you know, anyway. There's a big stone in one of the streets that says, Cuba and Ireland, two countries in the same sea of struggle. Because of proximity to power. Yeah, yeah, at the time, you know, in the same sea of struggle. What do you have left to do in your own life, in the course of your own life? Do you have work that you haven't done? Well, you know, for the last, because of the COVID, you know, we've gone out of one darkness to go into another with the war, which affects everybody. But I I want to go back to Havana. I've had, as I said earlier on, very few solo exhibitions. You know, obviously Samuel Beckett, you can hang on the wall 20 pictures of Simon. People want to see the pictures. You've been listening to an arts and culture podcast for Tripe and Rasheen with me, Ellie O'Byrne. Tripe and Rasheen is your independent, reader-supported local news substack for Cork City and County. It's completely advertising-free. If you can, please support us by subscribing for just €8 per month or €80 per year. All your subscription fees will go to supporting independent local journalism in Cork. If you can't subscribe, you can still sign up for free. And if you want to help us spread the word, use our social media. That's at Tidrasheen on Twitter or Tripe and Rasheen on Facebook or Instagram to share the articles that you like. Talk to you next time. <laughs> <laughs>